What does it mean to look for alien life? Are we ready to meet something that is just a bit like us, but substantially different? Today's guests have spent many years thinking about life, but not as we know it. They're here for a conversation at the boundary of known and unknown, where science meets fiction, and the two come together to shape our imagination. Welcome to Space on the Page. My name is Lucas Mix, and I am an astrobiologist, a scientist working to understand the origin, extent, and future of life in the universe. I am currently working at the Library of Congress, studying the interaction between science and science fiction in astrobiology. This podcast brings together scientists and authors to talk about astrobiology and the role of the imagination as we take our first steps into space. In this episode, author John Scalzi and astrobiologist Frank Rosenzweig talk about how alien aliens might be and what they might tell us about ourselves. Hi, I'm John Scalzi. I'm a science fiction writer, and I'm probably best known for Old Man's War, which is a story about humans who meet aliens and go to war with them. I also have uh, written a number of other science fiction books and have worked in television uh, most notably recently on the Love, Death, and Robots TV series for Netflix. I am going to share with our audience that you have an undergraduate degree in philosophy that shows up a good bit. You have served as the president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and have a blog at whatever.scalzi.com. These are all true statements. I, I cannot deny a single one of them. Do you have anything coming up in the near future that you would like to tell us about? In March, I have a book that is called The Kaiju Preservation Society. So it's a, almost like talking about an alien species, except uh, on an alternate Earth uh, and uh, with very, very large creatures indeed. I wanted to follow up briefly. You, you mentioned Love, Death, and Robots. I am a huge fan of your short story, When the Yogurt Took Over. Uh, it's an elegantly brief satire of human complacency and notions of human superiority. You describe genetically engineered yogurt taking over the world before launching itself into space. The story ends with these lines. Life on Earth is going to the stars. It just may not be human life. What happens if the yogurt goes to the stars without us? What happens if it goes and leaves us behind forever? <laughs> now, I have spent considerable time on the myths we tell about evolution and about spaceflight, so this story hit all the right buttons for me. Uh, in exactly 1,000 words, you manage with incredible humor uh, to question many of our basic assumptions about the relationships between humans and the cosmos. Can you say a little bit about what inspired you to write it? What inspired me to write it was actually a friend asking me to write a review of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And one of the things that I noted was the hero of that, uh, of that book is valorized for the things that he does. But uh, if we were to imagine the same motivations and actions and say a cup of yogurt 
we would recognize them as sociopathic and go, my goodness, that cup of yogurt is trying to kill us all. Somebody eat it before it can do that. Uh, and having done that, somebody, uh, I just started thinking about, uh, you know, a cup of yogurt taking over the world and how it would happen. And I was like, well, now I have to write this. And in writing it, I wanted to actually hit, as you mentioned, literally all the tropes of a classic science fiction story, which is outlandish premise, a little bit of scientific grounding to give it a uh, plausibility, quote unquote plausibility, a arc of the story that seems positive, but at the end leaves us a deep philosophical and existential question about our own place in the universe. And as you say, get it all done in a thousand words so that, you know, you're quick in and quick out. So that's what I did. I wrote it in about uh, 45 minutes and now it's a episode on TV for Love, Death and Robots. My life is weird. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Clearly a man of culture. So, <laughs> oh, 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 my goodness. You I couldn't there. help it. You went there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frank, could you give us an introduction? Sure. So uh, my name is Frank Rosenzweig. I'm a professor at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. My uh, background is a little complicated. I've had a few lives, like, in fact, most of us. I started graduate school late, largely because I pursued literary studies in my uh, in my younger days. But since uh, since uh, going to graduate school and working through through academia, I've been interested in uh, evolutionary questions, chiefly the genetic basis of adaptation. And over the last decade or so, those uh, interests have sort of been elevated to trying to understand at the genetic level uh, some of the major steps that have taken uh, place uh, during the course of evolution, leading to really changes in complexity, such as the evolution of multicellularity, but also we're interested in the evolution of other sort of cooperative arrangements, including those uh, leading to the to the existence of, of present-day organelles like chloroplasts and mitochondria. And um, towards that end, I, I was lucky enough to be one of the one of the last leaders of one of the NASA Astrobiology Institutes uh, and that particular project, which was a multidisciplinary and multi-institutional project, was focused on on trying to recapitulate uh, some of these major transitions using experimental techniques in the lab, where we could uh, we could follow those changes uh, and establish their genetic basis. One of my formative uh, influences was my mother, who was a a lit professor, but who was obsessed with science fiction. <laughs> and one of my uh, happiest memories were or or was sitting in my great-grandmother's garage where she had a steamship trunk full of fantasy and science fiction, you know, all of these old uh, periodicals uh, from the 30s and 40s with their Fantastic Universe was one of them, if I recall correctly, with these incredible illustrations. 
and and just devouring these stories. So I've been a big science fiction fan all of my life. I will share that uh, from 2016 to 2017, you were a fellow at the Center of Theological Inquiry at Princeton, looking into the societal implications of astrobiology. And something that uh, I found fascinating, you have a, a bachelor's in comparative literature, which shows up uh, at the strangest times, but really quite wonderfully. Can you say something about what it means to look for life, but not as we know it, and how your own research into the history of life on Earth informs the search for life elsewhere? I would say that we've, we've already encountered life as we could not have imagined it a uh, hundred years ago, or even 50 years ago, in the, the so-called extreme environments on our own planet. And so uh, organisms that are able to serve as batteries, essentially uh, glommed onto rocks, or to live under conditions that would uh, sterilize uh, hospital uh, implements, and do so just as happily, if I can even use that word, uh, as, as, as we just sitting in our comfortable surroundings here. And so there's, um, I think there's a fair amount of consensus in the, in the scientific community that is concerned with origins that these, um, what we would consider to be hostile and extreme environments are probably the birthplace of life as we know it. And so um, so it's therefore not, it's, it's, it's easy for me to imagine the sort of prospecting that we're going to be doing for the next 10 years, 100 years, hopefully 100,000 years, uh, trying to recognize uh, alien life and all the bizarre varieties that I hope that we'll discover. Well, that's a, a great segue because I wanted to ask John, what is the most alien alien you have written about? And what do you think that reveals uh, either about life or about the uh, limits of your own imagination? I would say uh, it's an interesting question because what I do is not only about speculating about what kind of alien life could exist, right? But I'm also having to make that alien life at least slightly comprehensible to the people who are reading my books, because otherwise some of them will fall down and not quite get what I'm doing. So as a writer of fiction, I have to often humanize the aliens in a way that actually would take them further from what I as a person would imagine an alien creature would be because they have to have conversations with the humans, you know, or they have to have recognizable motives. So all of my alien building as a practical sense um, is bounded by how are they going to fit into the story and how can I make them work? Left to my own devices, I can think of some genuinely alien aliens uh, and I feel pretty good about that in terms of my imagination. Now I just have to write a story in which genuinely alien aliens are part of the whole uh, the narrative. One of the stories that you could do, uh, for example, and is like, for example, a story where uh, humans have colonized for some reason a gas giant, 
right? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we imagine that uh, intelligence would happen in a gas giant, would you basically, you would have these jellyfish-like creatures who float in a strata of the atmosphere that's basically oxygen uh, oxygenated and able to, you know, exist within that one bound. The, the point of them would not be that the humans are communicating with them, right? The point would be that the humans are uh, coexisting with them. And then the question becomes, for example, are humans in fact coexisting with them or are humans going to do what humans going to do every time they meet up with a megafauna uh, that they don't understand but might be tasty um, or have some resources that they could actually benefit from like oil or whatever uh, and basically hunt them to, to extinction. And so that is one of the things that you can absolutely think about is if we can't communicate with an alien species, how do we know it's intelligent? If we don't know if it's intelligent, do we find a way to uh, basically monetize them uh, and use them for resources? And if we do find that they are intelligent, um, do we care? Wow. Because exactly. yeah, because because <laughs> once again, humans are not do not have a great track record of meeting up with other intelligent species, which on Earth would be other humans. And basically treating them as equals to begin with. But we don't. Yeah, um, but we don't have a good track record with whales, for example. Right. You know. Uh, yes. Yes, that's exactly right. We don't have a good track record with whales. We don't have a good track record with uh, other primates. We don't have a good track record with uh, elephants. We have a reasonably good track record with crows, but that's because crows and other corvids uh, can fly away from us. <laughs> so. Uh, when it comes down to it, um, a lot of the a lot of the issue of uh, imagining a truly alien alien in connection to with humans is not can we imagine uh, a truly alien alien, but can we imagine humans doing uh, anything other than damage to these aliens because they do not understand them? Well, here's a question for you, John. So, is uh, if, if, is it okay? Yeah. Yes. Popping in here. So um, the word intelligence has been mm-hmm. uh, bandied about here. And so um, is intelligence, uh, first of all, is it, is it inevitable? Mm-hmm. Uh, just as people ask me all the time, is multicellularity and cellular right. differentiation uh, inevitable? Given enough time, um, I think I think it's uh, likely to happen. I don't know that it's always inevitable. And then even when you get intelligence, um, does that come to the point where we are talking about the sort of intelligence that humans have? You know, the theory of self, for example, um, that humans have, that other uh, advanced animals have. Does that mean also, because I wrote about this once about a species that had uh, intelligence, um, but did not have individual consciousness. Mm-hmm. Does intelligence require consciousness? Does consciousness absolutely need intelligence? All of these sorts of things. The problem that we have is that we have one working model to go on, and actually we have more than that, but we don't arrogate to other species the same level of consciousness uh, and situational intelligence that we have ourselves. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and again, um, to go back to science fiction, which is kind of my home territory, um, what's really interesting is that in so much of science fiction, humans go out to the stars and they meet uh, their peers, 
you know, uh, alien or not, there's a certain level of cognizance of intelligence. Even when we try to create alien aliens, we try to ascribe some sort of intelligence to them. But if you look, as you mentioned, statistically speaking, 900 times, you know, 999 times out of a thousand, the alien life we are likely to meet is likely to be, uh, you know, bacterium or the equivalent of bacterium, the equivalent of slime mold, the equivalent of these very, very simple creatures. Because once again, again, we only have Earth as a model, but if we do use Earth as a model, 95% of the time of life on Earth is bacteria and slime mold. And then all of a sudden, oh, now we have oxygen. Now we can start doing things. Uh, but, uh, and so it's kind of interesting, you know, knowing from a uh, scientific point of view that the aliens we are most likely to meet are going to be tiny, tiny, tiny little creatures. Is it limiting? Would it really be a, would it be just a boring story if you couldn't drive the action with some sort of conflict? Well, you know, the thing about it is, um, when I talk about, well, science fiction does this and science fiction does this for a reason, there are things that we are sort of eliding. And the first is, uh, as you say, you know, it's easier to uh, create conflict and interest if you have the funhouse mirror version of yourself and having to, uh, you know, deal with that and possibly surmount it. Uh, the other thing is that we do not write stories in a vacuum. For example, you know, the quote unquote golden age of science fiction was basically driven by one man, editor Joseph Campbell uh, at Analog, because that was the market to which everybody wrote. And if you didn't sell to Analog, then you took that story to all the other places and they took it or they didn't. So everybody was, not everybody, but a lot of writers were basically writing to one man's taste, you know, and uh, that really... um, bent science fiction to what that one man liked for better or for worse, you know? Um, and so if we had had an editor who was like, no, I really want slime mold drama, uh, then we would have, we would have a lot more slime mold drama stories. So, and the other thing is, is that, you know, yes, it's easier to do the conflict, uh, when you're looking in the funhouse mirror, but could you do a story where the aliens are indeed completely incomprehensible? Could you do a story where the survival of a slime mold is actually part of uh, the story? And does that slime mold, for example, say have the same right to life that we would arrogate to ourselves? And yes, you could create a story where the rights of xenobiology, even in the abstract, are a real crisis for the story and drive the the narrative but you have to be really good yeah that i mean that that could be very powerful but maybe that's just i mean maybe it's one good story there i mean yeah how many times can you tell that particular story oh come on Science fiction is like all the rest of literature. We have we we come back to a lot of the same stories over and over again for a number of reasons. You know, one because the audience twenty years on is not the same as it was twenty years before. You have new readers who have not read that type of story before, or you have stories where you're uh, interrogating the same presses. Uh, from a completely different point of view. We come back to the same stories over and over. So yes, we could perennially come back to 
the rights of Simold in science fiction. I mean, that's a that's a Worldcon panel in and of itself. But uh, you know, the question is, do we? Do we? Because do we as authors have our own interest in this? And do we? Because the market will allow us to write that story and sell it. I was thinking Ursula Le Guin's uh, "The Word for World is Forest" and uh, your uh, your fuzzy nation deal very sure. specifically with this question of uh, the rights of an indigenous species, which you know initially may or may not be considered intelligent. It may be that this slime mole or this cyanobacterium, you know, does not have intelligence as most people would envision it, and yet they carry out some important ecological function you know, on a local or global scale without which this world would collapse. And so, and so then, you know, that complicates the encounter. uh, But we might not know this. Sure. Well, no, I mean, the funny thing about humans is we barely look beyond, you know, our own noses when it comes to the consequences of the things that we do, which of course is a perennial topic, but absolutely. I mean, we all, I mean, we know that uh, we would not exist now if in fact, you know, many, many years ago, you know, the bacterium did not start producing oxygen as a waste product. This is a, you know, a big tension, I think, in science fiction. uh, And when we're talking about life as we don't know it, that we literally uh, have a hard time comprehending you know, timescales involved, the, uh, the, the biology and chemistry that is involved. All of these things uh, make it very difficult for us to create a model in our mind of these creatures um, that we can somehow care about. We have all heard about the idea of, you know, charismatic megafauna. Right. It's it's easier to try to save the pandas than it is to try to save a particularly disgusting form of a beetle. Right. Something that, you know, eats poop or something, go whatever. Right. Um, and that's just on planet Earth. We're more than willing to go bend over backwards to save the Sumatran tiger, which, by the way, we should. Let's do that. Uh, that then we are to uh, save the you know the tick that that exists on that tiger's backside. Cir- circling back to, to astrobiology, so I mean I didn't get my first bolus of, of NASA funding until about a dozen years ago, but being in this community has been really exciting for me and enlightening in that I've grown to appreciate, as I think, you know, any uh, literate citizen does now, the ubiquity of water um, in the solar system, probably in the universe, the ubiquity of of, uh, hydrocarbons, so that Mm -hmm. much more than when uh, Yuri and Miller did their experiments back in the 50s, it seems that the uh, uh, that the ingredients, the available ingredients, are far more widely dispersed uh, than we ever possibly could have imagined, even maybe a generation ago. So, going you know, going back to the the subject of this conversation, life as we you know don't know it. I think everybody in the astrobiology community 
that is actually doing bench science is thinking along the lines of what we've been talking about, namely that some replicating entity, it, it may not necessarily be based on, you know, a nucleic acid code. It may not necessarily be, you know, proteinaceous, but it's going to be some sort of, you know, uh, carbon-based, you know, uh, aqueous inhabiting uh, creature. And so uh, in your science fiction musings, what do you think, musings and readings, what do you think are some of the most interesting examples that are scientifically plausible that go beyond the notion of life somehow being uh, dependent on water, carbon, hydrogen, uh, and oxygen? I mean, I think one of the, the most interesting concepts would be the idea of uh, life that is not planet bound, right? Uh -huh. Not, And when I talk about planets, I'm not just talking about like Earth, but like moons or like basically that there's a rock or an atmosphere that they attach themselves to. Because we know from a first approximation that it's happened before because, hi, we're talking on <laughs> this thing now. Um, and then from there, it gets progressively less likely. Like, like, for example, in our own system, the places that are likely, most likely to have life are the places where there is going to be liquid water. And we know that there are moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn that have basically oceans uh, underneath, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of miles thick of ice. Now, what are those, what are those things going to be like is going to be a completely, you know, uh, question, you know, a wild question because we don't know because the, the world that they have developed in is completely different from ours. Such high pressure, no light. Are the, what's the available energy there? Now there, you know, there's these huge tidal, you know, uh, motions due to, you know, them basically being around gas giants, but you know, they don't have rotation. And so all of these things are, you know, things that you uh, ask yourself, what, what are, what are the mechanics that are available that will develop the life there? And the further you get away from the standard earth model, the wilder that they are going to be, right? We might be able to recognize, you know, a uh, liquid moon life as being life. Would we recognize nebular life as being life? <laughs> Would we actually be able to detect it as our instruments went through it? And so on. So, Frank, I know you've uh, you've looked at multiple origins of multicellularity, and uh, so I'm gonna, uh, I guess, throw out there the idea that multicellularity is not one thing, but that there are multiple multicellularities. Yeah, is that reasonable? I, that's that's reasonable to say. And you know, I think uh, if you if you even want to use the word encouraging, the fact that it has that multicellularity, whether clonal or aggregative, it, it's arisen, you know, two or three dozen times in, in, in lineages that haven't had anything to do with one another in hundreds of millions of years. And so, you know, the, the fact that we observe this happen repeatedly in very different environments and in very different clades of organisms uh, suggests that once a body is is populated with sufficiently complex organisms that this is this is a likely outcome so so with that in mind i'm gonna 
take your question to John and throw it back at you and say, do you, uh, what do you think is, uh, is intelligence going to arise and are there going to be multiple intelligences in the way there are multiple multicellularities? I would say absolutely. If cephalopods, you know, have a clearly a very different type of intelligence than we do. Not, like, not everyone will know what, what cephalopods are. Can you, can you oh, say more? Octopi and squid. Uh, these organisms that li- live uh, these incredibly brief lives, and yet within those brief lives, you know, uh, have you know a very rich and, for my money, extremely intelligent uh, way of operating uh, in their in their worlds, and also, but you know, uh, 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 neurologically, they are profoundly different. Uh, from us and have this sort of intelligence that's literally distributed through their bodies in a, uh, in a very different way from our sort of organization into this central nervous system. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a low hanging fruit of an example. I would urge anybody who hasn't seen it to see my octopus teacher, which is a, a, a really glorious piece of cinematography, but yeah, I think there'll be, I think there'll be different types of intelligence. And it's something that I said earlier, and that is that the type of intelligence that is required, you know, to write a piece of haiku or even a great thousand word piece of science fiction, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. only in the, in the galaxy of intelligences, that's, that's only one. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Corvids. And I can tell you that uh, that's a different kind of intelligence. It has aspects that are familiar to us. But if you think about having a brain that is always half on and half off, so th- this is literally the case that, uh, that um, you know, these extremely intelligent birds, you know, half of their brain will be sleeping and the other half will be awake and alert to all the dangers in the environment. I wish I could do that, but uh, but I cannot. (laughs) So I I think even within the familiar examples that we would, that everybody would accept as advanced animal intelligence, that they're very different ways of thinking and being uh, here on our own planet. And, you know, given Given those observations, I think we're likely to encounter, a, uh, you know, if we have the hundreds of thousands of years necessary to to meet others, to meet others very different from ourselves. I agree with that 100 percent. And I think the thing that, again, to come back to is not the issue of whether or not there is intelligent life out there, but whether or not we will get over our own arrogance and uh, prejudice towards our own model of intelligence to understand that different modes of intelligence exist. You were mentioning the corvids, you mentioned, you know, the cephalopods, the whales and the, you know, uh, cetaceans, all of these creatures are hugely intelligent creatures, but even after the point where we decided that we probably shouldn't wipe them all out, uh, we were still discounting the sort of intelligence that they have because it wasn't our intelligence. And I got to tell you, you put a human in the same uh, 
a, you know, in the same environment as a, as a octopus, they're not going to look that smart. Right. Because (laughs) the the intelligence that they have is not tuned to that particular environment. If you put a human in the same environment, you know, as a dolphin or a whale, same sort of thing. Um, A lot of what we describe as our own intelligence is hugely contextually dependent on the world that we apprehend on a daily basis. We will have to acknowledge as we go out into the universe um, that the creatures that we meet are not going to be forehead aliens, are not being written by science fiction authors, that they will have naturally evolved in their own environment, in their own context, and we need to be prepared to not understand what we meet first in order to then understand them uh, and move forward with them. I, I also want to bring up Ted Chang has a great story called The Great Silence, which is all about uh, parrots reflecting on the fact that they've been talking to us for a long time uh, and, and we haven't noticed. Uh, meanwhile, we're, uh, we're wiping out uh, uh, their habitat looking for life, specifically with the Arecibo telescope. We, we ask this question of, of whether we're alone. And of course, we never are alone. Uh, we're always mm-hmm. surrounded by other organisms uh, and we're always surrounded by other life. And uh, identifying it and understanding it is one of the big challenges. I have found, as I think a lot of us through the pandemic, as we've been in isolation, I've always had animals, but I can say that, uh, you know, my animals and the presence of that other has been of particular importance to me on a level that I can't even really describe without, you know, getting a lump in my throat. Uh, just having that uh, that connection during a time when we have been so disconnected. And so, you know, as we venture out, it, it does seem to me that some of us, you know, who are motivated by wanting a glimpse of the other and that contact. Yeah. And I think that's, there's something very sweet and noble as well as romantic about that. So I'll I'll stop with that. I have nothing to add. That's actually a perfect place to stop. <laughs> I agree. Thank you both so much. John, thank you for all that you write. I'm looking forward to the slime mold fiction. Um, <laughs> and uh, Frank, as you know, it is always a pleasure. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Very good. John, my pleasure to meet you. Keep up the great work. This is Space on the Page a podcast from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Our original music was composed and performed by Andrew Briner. In our next episode, we will join astrobiologist Batul Kachar and writer Nedia Korafor to discuss remembering our future in space, the complex relationship between time and history and what we carry with us as we journey outward. I'm Lucas Mix. See you next time.